Welcome to the Multifamily Five, where industry experts provide raw information about how they are achieving success in the current market conditions. And now, your host, Dallas-based real estate broker, Mark Allen. Welcome to the Multifamily Five. Today, I have Mitchell Voss from Windmass Capital. Mitch, how's it going? Good. How about you? Good, good. Glad to have you on. Thank you. So I've enjoyed getting to know you and kind of seeing the the progress um, on the real estate side as you've acquired some some smaller class C deals. And when I say smaller, between the uh, call it in the fifty, call it the under two hundred unit space, and then um, now really active uh, with some confidence and. Uh, being a little more savvy after getting those deals done and now taking down much larger deals. Um, and it looks like you have, have a great road ahead of you. Um, and they're going to be very busy on both the acquisition side and then also getting your arms wrapped around some of these deals, which some are a little bit hairy. But, um, you know, with that, I just want to uh, have you introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your story, how you got going, uh, where you started, and then how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So, so Windmass has really been around um, you know, kind of officially for a couple of years, but um, we made kind of a large push about 18 months ago to, to really become active and, and a lot more involved in purchasing. Um, we have one deal that's a, that's a covered land play, but started to move into the, the value add space, which is a space we always thought we'd be involved with and, and plan to be involved with. And uh, that'll be you know, the predominant space that we play in. Uh, but uh, but made a couple value add acquisitions over the past uh, 12 months. We bought a 134 unit deal. We bought a 341 unit deal around the corner. We're under contract on a, on a 396 unit deal, uh, and then we're actively negotiating uh, a couple others. One we actually lost today, which is pretty exciting. But uh, we only worked on it for about 48 hours, so uh, wasn't wasn't too bad. But I I come from an institutional background. I was previously with Goldman Sachs and their real estate investment banking practice. Uh, worked on a New York-based team where we we're doing sort of ultra-large loans and underwriting of large deals. You know, anything from, um, you know, from a $200 million portfolio loan on a multifamily, uh, you know, property or properties in San Francisco to the Fountain Blue in Miami, which is a billion-dollar balance sheet loan to um, to all sorts of other other sort of loans, but primarily on the debt side with Goldman. I was at UBS prior to that on their institutional investment side, so we were buying uh, more kind of class A minus apartments, slightly fixing them up, uh, and typically working with some of the larger uh, management companies to help us sort of execute those plans and also continue to run and manage those. Uh, and I did that in tandem with uh, working in another industrial group as well. So we were developing industrial product and, uh, and that was pretty exciting and pretty interesting. And then prior to that, I was at Deutsche Bank um, in their real estate structure finance debt team as well. But I got my start actually here in Dallas uh, with Centerline Capital, which is now Hunt Mortgage today, but they're a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lender and, uh, and really kind of cut my teeth in apartments back in 2010 with them. So appreciative that they got me into the business. Great, 
Well, again, happy to have you on. I guess the conversation or, or how we got this started, I wanted to bring you on to the show, not only because you're doing great things and you're really growing, but also just to dive in on your capital stack. Um, you choose to go the family office route, uh, for, you know, maybe one or two big check writers um, versus you know, a lot of the groups out there are syndication, especially in the BC value add in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, where they're raising, you know, 25, 50, 100, 250K chunks here and there. Um, and may have anywhere from, you know, 30 to 100 investors in a deal. And then they have to manage that. So, uh, that, you know, that's, that's what I want uh, the show to basically, um, you know, this is the basis of the show. And, you know, we'll take it from there. So I was just curious, though, with your institutional banking background, how do you think that's kind of helped you? Uh, doing what you're doing today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the term ex-Goldman definitely helps me. It gets me in the doors that, that a lot of people can't get into without sort of having that, that type of exposure experience. And, and, you know, I'm very lucky that I had the opportunity to go work at a firm like Goldman Sachs. There's really sort of no no other firm that I can think of that has such a prestigious name and, and it sort of is affiliated with, with usually success and talent. Um, and there were a lot of really talented people I work with and many people that were smarter than I am. Um, but that's definitely been, I think, the largest driver of my ability to get into doors that ordinarily would not be open to me, especially where I am in my career. I, I shouldn't be able to, to do, um, do what we've been doing with, with the limited track record that we have, which is really you know, just kind of getting started. So, um, so that's been a huge, huge uh, element to our ability to get in. But also something I've been really surprised with, I have a lot of old clients from my days at UBS, from days at Deutsche Bank, days at Goldman Sachs, uh, that ended up being really interested in investing, you know, in me and with me. Um, and that's kind of how things got kicked off. I started to get backed by some of my ex-clients and other people uh, that ended up writing much larger, more substantial checks. I think they liked what we pulled together. You know, as you can imagine, in the sort of corporate environment I was in, there was an awful lot of memo writing and very, you know, lengthy detail in terms of those memos. So we pulled together a 50-page, you know, memo deck, regardless of the deal is on market or off market. So if it's off market, we're creating all those materials ourselves, putting that package together, not only doing the write-up and the business plan, but also formatting it and making it look good. Um, and, and we've been, you know, uh, it's been well received in terms of what we put together and how we sort of show it. So that's also been really helpful to us. But but um, I think doing doing what we're doing in terms of showing a more institutional package, we've luckily gotten back by some of my old former clients that that I think I helped make some money over the past eight or ten years. Um, and then of course you know some of them are doing very well or have been doing very well. So they have their own family offices or they're able to introduce me to people at family offices. So I've gotten introduced to some pretty interesting and unique people. Um, and that's really what sort of led, led me down this path. So uh, the deal we did about 12 months ago, there was no family office money in. Uh, we had four family offices invest in our most recent deal and expect the, the family office and other funds uh, also we're talking to, but those groups to be working with us going forward. 
Yeah, and it sounds like capital isn't the issue. You have over, you know, a hundred million dollars of liquidity backing you. It's more so time. You could do more deals if you had you had more time, right? Yeah, I think you know our biggest focus has never been. Um, well, when I was first starting out, it was it was all about the equity. When can I find the equity? Where is it going to come from? I was constantly nervous about that, and I still am. Um, I don't walk in every deal feeling like I've got it made and I'm ready to go, uh, which is why we pull together such a robust deck and sp spend so much time on deals sort of front end, front end loading those and making sure that we feel really confident about it, but also that we can uh, convey through our memo, you know, the business plan and sort of what we expect the returns to look like. Um, but, but yeah, our, our main focus going forward is really not who the equity is going to be, uh, even though we've got sort of a list of, of probable, uh, probable players. I think what we're really focused on is really good deals that we believe in and that we think are going to be fundamentally strong. We also put our own money in. Um, so I think that helps people get confident, but again, you know, we're, we're always seeking for deals that have something unique or have some element that we think we can, we can really, you know, drive a lot more value through, um, or it's just a good deal. And, and by that, it can either be via CapEx, it can be via management, uh, or it could be a combination of both. Yeah, I should have said deals in that time. <laughs> Not hard to find good deals out there. So, yeah, we'll... so let's talk a little bit about structure. Um, I want to start there. So how do you structure your deals with a couple of these family offices or, or equity groups that you're working with? Yeah, so I'm really careful about structure. So, you know, um, I know some of my competitors they raise money and there's fees charged to their investors uh, or to the investment group that, that the, uh, the group that tasked with raising the money uh, is charging either to, you know, to the sponsor, someone like myself or to, you know, to the investment group or individual investors. I, I really try and keep everything very level. Um, so my goal is usually to, you know, bring in partners, uh, if there's multiple people investing, which, which we've always had so far, um, we provide a 10% prep. We do a 30 promote. So we, the sponsor gets 30% over that 10. Um, we charge an asset management fee, charge an acquisition fee. Um, and then we also charge a fee for refinancing the asset in the event we refinance and return, return capital. Uh, but we return our fees in the event that we don't meet the hurdle requirements. So if we don't provide a 10 return, we actually give our fees back to the investors. Because I think what we're trying to tell everybody is, here's what we can do. And we're usually exceeding, exceeding those returns uh, by a substantial amount. So if we miss that much, um, I imagine it would be more market-driven. But nevertheless, uh, we want people to know that you know, we, we sort of are looking to protect the investors first. And we're second um, because our fiduciary duty is to the investors. And I think that's helped us a lot. It's something I learned more on the institutional side um, that we tended to see, and it was you know a return of fees if you didn't perform. And and uh, I I feel a lot better doing that. Um, you know I almost view view every asset management check I get as a as a little bit of a loan until we have things really going, but. Um, but that's something that's helped us a lot too. And then the 10 pref 
is, is higher than, than normal and 30 for mode is probably at market or a little below. So, uh, so we're not real greedy on our fees. And let's call it, let's say if it's a $10 million equity uh, that you got to bring to the table, how much are you bringing? And then how much is our, our other groups bringing? These other families. Yeah, I mean, our family office groups, you know, some of them like to write a million dollar checks, some write three to seven million dollar checks. You know, one I've spoken to um, and we're beginning to work with, they don't want to write checks less than 25 million. Um, so there's sort of a sort of a varying uh, difference in terms of the, the check size that we get. Um, we it's a smaller raise, we tend to do 25% in, let's say it's, you know, inside $5 million, we're probably going to do 25% through the GP group. Um, otherwise, we're probably going to be more likely an 85-15 split or a 90-10. Um, but that said, you know, sometimes we'll go up, go up higher than that and do, uh, you know, do something like a, a 20 or 25, even on a larger raise. So we're in the middle of a of a raise that will be approximately 40 million and that um, in that raise we'll probably contribute 10 ourselves so that'd be 25 percent okay and then where does the 10 come from I, obviously you're not writing a 10 million dollar check unfortunately now so uh, so i've got i've got somebody here that that backs us and also helps provide credit support uh in terms of signing for for guarantees um and then there's a grouping of, like I said, ex-clients and, um, and other investors and smaller family offices that will also come in and sort of round out um, round out equity if we've got a larger provider that's sort of ponying up for the, for the major check. But again, we're not necessarily or, or really never giving GP economics away to, to regular LP investors. It's, it's still staying with us. Yeah. And why is that? Um, well, you know, we're, we're, we're going out, we're sourcing the deals. We're spending a lot of time to do this. This is not a hobby for us. This is, this is our business. Um, and we exclusively focus on this. So, you know, I think people are willing to pay us economics if we can deliver terms generally to what we say we're, we're going to provide. And we're, we're generally sourcing deals that are net IRRs and, uh, and that will fund us the capital of, you know, 16 to 20 and a two to two and a half multiple invested capital. And that's on a, on an average of around five, five and a half years old. How do you find these family offices? Maybe some you were connected through your network. Um, if you were a syndicator that wanted to start working with family offices, what route or what would you recommend that they do? Yeah, I mean, so on my last raise, um, <laughs> we were going to go with a fund out of Canada, but there were a bunch of uh, a bunch of scary provisions in there, and and I think everybody should be really cautious about taking the wrong equity because there there is a lot of equity out there, but some equity is either more predatory or just doesn't necessarily um, doesn't really. Uh, view themselves as much of a partner as they do sort of a lender and, and have a lot of uh, a lot of provisions and control rights that make it very difficult for you to perform. 
Um, so I don't like those types of structures. Um, so when we we started raising, we didn't have a lot of time. Uh, we only had three and a half weeks really to raise the money. And I started out with a list of 32 people and within eight days, that list had gone to 94 because every single person that I talked to, um, I asked them, is there somebody else who should be sending this to you? Do you know anybody else? Uh, so it really happened with one family office that branched out into three here, and then there was a family office that I had done some work with, or four um, out of Chicago that also stepped up. But, um, but there were two family offices I had never spoken to or met prior to uh, prior to this raise and they ended up investing with us. So <clears throat> I think it really comes down to, you know, consistently asking people if there's somebody else you can show the opportunity to. I also, I, I think one thing that's been really helpful for me is I, I never view my deals as showing them to somebody as asking for a favor because I don't think that I am asking them for a favor. I'm providing them with an opportunity and they can either take it or leave it, but if they choose the best opportunity, I believe in it. I'm putting my you know, time and I'm putting my efforts and my money into the deal, so obviously I also believe in it. And, um, and I think that's been also really helpful. I find some people feel that they're asking for a favor when they're asking for money, and I think that's the wrong way to, to sort of approach it. If, if you feel like it's a favor, then you probably don't believe in the deal enough. If you feel like you're providing somebody with an opportunity that you're really excited about, then it really doesn't feel that way. So I think that's that's one other thing, you know, I think to be mindful of. And and of course that every single person who's kind of looking to do this should be thinking about if they feel like it's not, you know, a great deal, then maybe they shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, you talked a little bit about predatory uh family offices or, or capital where they look at it as less of a partnership and more of a, they're more of a lender. Um, so that yeah. kind of brings up the thought, uh, what are the risks working with family offices? Or what could look, work? some, some may ask for some control rights. Some may ask for, you know, additional economics. I haven't run into that. Um, what, what does that mean? I, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I charge an acquisition fee of one point, they may ask for a third of it. I charge an asset management fee, they may also ask for, you know, a portion of that asset management fee. <laughs> Some type of things can come, can come up. Um, you know, provisions that really scare me, owner or, uh, or investors that tell you, you know, they want to have a put-sell right where they can buy you out, but they want you to stay on as a guarantor for the loan. Well, that doesn't work. Uh, that was actually the case from our last deal. So, you know, I I think you just have to be careful that, you know, that you're okay with the economics. And, and again, some family offices, you know, they're looking for a passive check, and that's fine. Others are looking for more majority control. Now, that's that's what I run into. You know, if, you've, if, if you're a group that's going out and asking somebody to raise money for you or, or it's getting the majority of your equity from another group, say it's 95% equity from said group, you're giving up a lot of control and they probably can do a lot more to you in the event deals start going poorly. But people aren't talking about this because nobody's deal has gone wrong. I mean, somebody famously said to me a few years ago, everybody right now in real estate is a genius because nobody's lost money in the past five years. Well, that's sort of true. <coughs> but 
when things start to get tough, and who knows when that is, you, you just want to make sure you've got a partner that you can work with and a partner that allows you to solve problems rather than precludes you from being able to solve a problem like investing more capital or whatever it may be um, so that you know you can perform versus them sort of saying, okay, forget it, we're unhappy with you, or we'd actually rather just take over control and we'll get more economics you know, via that because you haven't performed exactly your thresholds. So, um, so you've got to be really careful and make sure you understand who you're getting in with and you know, be careful that you're not just approaching somebody, asking, make an introduction, and then you know, the money comes really easily. I think if the money comes really easily and you don't really do much, that's not a good sign. Yeah. Um, I think you want to make sure that you're meeting with them, talking to them, you've walked through the deal, and it's not an instant yes uh, sort of questions and there's a discussion around it because if there's not that, then you should be concerned about how serious are they about really finding, uh, you know, finding out or understanding more about the deal, or are they just interested in writing a large equity check where you're also putting up equity, and guess what, your equity is first to be lost. Yeah. Um, that, that's kind of what I was getting at. I've even heard stories where, and I don't know if it's from experience, but uh, where maybe pref equity or family office uh, kind of last minute within the last couple of weeks while they're under contract says, hey, we're changing these terms on you. And sure. I mean, you absolutely have to be concerned about that, right? If you don't trust somebody or it's your first deal with them, you could get to the closing table and they could be 90% of your equity and they don't show up. Or they could be 50% and they don't show up. And then what do you do then? So I, I absolutely understand why lots of people like the other model where they go out and raise lots of 50 and 75 and $100,000 checks. My big issue with that is, one, I think you have, you have to be more part of a network or a group. And, um, you know, I, I office across the hallway from Brad Sumrock's group, and I think they actually do some really cool stuff. And I think they help some people that, you know, ordinarily would never be involved in sort of a private equity transaction and, and teach them to do some of that. Uh, my model is just different, right? I mean, I'm I'm focused on much larger investors. I'm focused on more sophisticated investors. I only deal with accredited investors. Um, I I do have a little bit of fear all the time about losing people's money, and I think my biggest fear is um, not that I don't worry about losing everybody's money, but I have a few friends that put in larger checks with me, and they're younger, and losing the amount of money they're putting in with me, it's stressful. So. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about that, um, but I also like dealing with people that I think evaluate the deal, that they understand the risks, and they know that this is not a guaranteed payment. They know this is not a guarantee uh, because there's no guarantee. I mean, we could lose money. Um, it's not our goal, of course, and we don't expect to, but I always have that fear that we could lose a little bit of money, and I don't want somebody to get hurt, especially by me. So that's that's something I like about what we do, which is, you know, going more the the accredited or high net worth individuals. Um, and then, of course, the, the family offices that we have to write, you know, the largest portion of our equity. Okay. Yeah, that kind of leads me into what, what are the differences between pref equity and working with family offices? So preferred equity and uh, maybe explain what that is. So, so more so, yeah. you know, private equity. Uh, preferred equity and family offices. Yeah, I mean, pref equity, well, look, I think this actually brings up a great point. So 
I, I think also anybody that is thinking about doing something in real estate, it is always really seductive to look at more debt, more leverage, taking all that on, and the returns that you can generate. Because you can lever so high, not very expensive, and um, and then you can get preferred equity, which is, for all intents and purposes, a second mortgage or mezzanine debt. Um and provide very little equity. And if things go great, then you've made a ton of money. But you're also sort of like going a thousand miles an hour and you run into a P and your car flips over. So it's it's not exactly a perfect scenario. Um, but, you know, let me talk about prep equity. So I have thought about prep equity. I have run all my models with it. I think about it constantly. It's a great model. So you know, and it's and it could be a great tool. I'm just not using it right now because I'm not sure. I don't know where we are in the cycle, and I'm not sure you know where things will shake out. And I always want the ability to be uh, to be less risky. So, and I'll actually come to risk too if you'll give me give me two seconds to talk about that. But um, when I look at prep equity, you know, you, it's it's essentially money that comes in. Um, sometimes it needs to be paid current, which is like a loan. Sometimes it does not. It can accrue interest or um, you can wait and pay it off you know, later, i.e. when you have a sale or a refinance. Um, but once you pay that off or once you meet the criteria that the prep equity is asked, so let's say you get a loan and you've got regular equity and then you get prep equity of a million dollars in a deal and they want 10%, well, you owe $100,000 per year. If you have it out for two years, you pay them a million dollars plus two hundred thousand. <coughs> they're gone. I mean, they're out. And then you've effectively captured, you know, a bunch of equity um, because you've kind of kind of used it as a tool to leverage additional um, to leverage the deal additionally. But they've also made you know a nice healthy return at a lower risk because they're essentially giving you money and they're prioritized over the other equity. So. Um, so that could be really beneficial, but again, you know, my my focus. Everybody talks about deals. The first thing I look at is where are all the risks, and being over levered is a huge risk. And we still take on a lot of leverage, but the other great thing we have is we have the family office backing, and we make it very clear we're going to lever really high. But in the event that we need to pay down the loan, we have the ability to call more capital. So we will call more capital say, you know, a million, could be five million, could be ten million dollars, but these groups are are amply furnished with cash where they can help us pay down the note or pay down the loan in the event we need it if there's a severe downturn or an issue or a casualty. So we can fix those problems. Some of my other competitors, they got they raise money through a syndication model. Well they've raised the money, but doing a capital call from sixty people, that's impossible. And I hear people talk about all the time is well I'm just going to loan money in. And I, I get that. I've actually lent money into one of my deals because I didn't raise enough. It was um, probably $150,000 short, so I lent some money in to sort of make sure that we had ample working capital, but that's all. Uh, but if you run into real severe problems with your lender and you don't have a model where you can call more capital, you're kind of in trouble because um, you can't fix the problem unless you're independently wealthy. And uh, and that's been something that has been really helpful for me, the fact that we always have that backing and always have the ability 
and we always negotiate the loan documents to partially prepay to avoid a default. Good stuff. Mitch, we've got four minutes, maybe a little bit less. Um, who are you looking to connect with? Knowing the audience is a lot of owners, some owner operators, uh, syndication groups. Um, anyone out there you're, you're looking to connect with? You know, I'm, I'm actually interested in meeting with everybody. I like listening to people's stories. I like listening to people's paths. I, I, I find there's so many unique ways to get into real estate the tangibility of it's so exciting and so interesting. You know, many of us have, have done something in real estate. We've, we've all leased an apartment. Uh, many of us have bought a house. Um, some of us have sold a house. So, you know, I'm always happy to talk to people about, about real estate, but um, I don't think there's anyone in particular that, that I need to reach out to. I think, you know, if anybody wants to reach out to me or talk to me, I'm, I'm always happy to do so. Um, and, um, uh, we're, we're expanding. So if there's any young, young guys that are in college that are thinking about, you know, moving into this business and sort of want to be more in the real estate private equity space. Um, you know, we're, we're expecting to, uh, to hire some more people over the next eight to 12 months and building out a new office and doing all those things. Love it. And I love that you're willing to give without taking anything in return something I really like about you. But anyways, Mitch, thanks so much for the time. Uh, really appreciate the insight. I look forward to actually going back and uh, listening to this. That's the best way I learn is uh, reading or, or listening multiple times. And uh, I think this was one of the better podcasts that I've put together or I mean, because of you, <laughs> not because of me. Uh, so good content, really appreciate it. What is the best way for listeners to, uh, to reach out to you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn constantly. So if people want to look me up on LinkedIn, uh, shoot me a message. I check those usually at four or five o'clock in the morning when I wake up and can't sleep. So uh, that's probably the easiest way. Sounds good. All right, Mitch. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you.